Welcome to Shoot First Talk Later, the photo shoot podcast with me, Robert Gershenson. Uh, my guest this week is uh, American stand-up comic, actor and TV host, Scott Cupuro. Uh, Scott's appeared in films like Star Wars and Mrs. Doubtfire and TV shows like That Gay Show and The Right Stuff. If you want to see the portraits I've just shot of Scott, go to www.sftl.photos. There's an S at the end, it's plural. We've done the shooting, now let's do the talking. Hi Scott, how are you? Fine, how are you? Sorry about that, <laughs> uh, that googly eye for the photo shoot. If people see my eye, it is swollen, I had an eye infection. Perfect day to have your photo taken. That won't be hard on my self-esteem whatsoever. I can't wait to see those pictures. My husband will just laugh and laugh and laugh when he sees them. I'm going to look like a monster a little bit. It looks fine. It looks fine. I woke up this morning. He said, this is when you kill me. This is when this, is when this big weird eye comes toward me. I get stabbed in bed. I'm like, honey, it's just an eye infection. He's like, you look like a killer. You look like, like you're going to kill somebody. So. Talking about killers, I mean, earlier before I pointed out an Alan Rickman um, yeah. An Alan Rickman picture, but it's not Alan Rickman. It's a painting of Peter Sutcliffe I bought at a garage, at a sort of an outdoor garage sale-y thing. A, boot, a car boot sale. Well, it was, um, it's, it's up here on Broadway Market every weekend. They do sort of an outdoor kind of, people set up little kind of, you know, little... Uh, little stalls. Yeah. Yeah. And sell their things. And, and the artist was selling little portraits of things. And he painted Betty White, and he painted somebody else, and then Peter Sutcliffe. Well, of course, that's the one I bought. <laughs> The sexiest of all the 70s zero-killing icons. He is like the granddaddy of them all. Mm, sure is. <laughs> um, this kind of, I guess this kind of ties in to the first thing I want to chat to you about. You're, you're often known as like a controversial comic. Why do people get so offended? Well, when you say controversial, I think you probably mean someone kind of close to the bone. And I don't think that not all... My experience has been that not all people get offended. Some do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some people might get offended. For I think there's... Uh, honestly, I don't know because I don't know them. Yeah. They're strangers to me. They're an audience. I'll never, uh, the likelihood is I'll never see them again. But I think some people do get offended because... This is my guess. Because they don't understand the joke. And they hear and see people around them laughing, hopefully. And they think, why am I not getting this? And suddenly they think they might be the joke. And they get defensive. Okay. That may not be their conscious thought, but I think suddenly they feel like they might be being made fun of. And they have a knee-jerk reaction. Exactly, like anyone would. Do you get people... I mean, in those situations, have people have people called you out while you're, you're mid-flow? It hasn't happened for a while. And I don't mind someone saying, your idea uh, is something that I'd like to discuss. But Honestly, they don't ever say it like that, do they? Well... No. Excuse me, sir. Well, actually, I was just in um, Chiswick for the weekend. Oh, wow. And I, Clang. Yes. And I asked a woman about her clitoris, and she said, oh, you poor thing. Didn't you have sexual education in school? That was her response. <laughs> That's a good response. Brilliantly Chiswick. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so some people do uh, have a sort of an educated response. But you're right. You're right. Most people get, oh, it's so strange when people go to a comedy club and get offended to me. It's it's, I, I know this sounds odd, but after 20 years on the road, 20 years, it's still a shock to me that someone would go, especially now with the internet where they can research everything they're going to watch. Yeah. They can log in and find me on YouTube. And I wouldn't spend 15 or 20 pounds in an evening on a performer unless I knew something about what I was seeing. I never have. And most people, I think, do check you out, but some don't. And then they're, when they get there, they feel like, 
How dare you make fun of the royals? How dare you? It's, it's Princess Kate now. Isn't that weird? How dare you make <laughs> and, uh, and really, royal supporters are very fervent and very vocal. And they feel the need to defend rich people who don't give a shit about them. So <laughs> here they are waving a flag. And, it, my, and my response to that, this is where I think you mean I seem controversial or offensive. My response is someone yelling out. Or if I sense friction in the room, I get all warm and googly inside and I get a semi and my response is to push it because I think, oh, this is good. This is why I'll never be on Radio 4. I think they're trying, but they can't find the right vehicle. I, I, for me, I, I think, oh, I've got to write more on, on you know, uh, Maddie. Yeah, uh, she's in the paper again today. I've got to write more on her or I've, this is, oh, you know, the Catholic Church, this is angering these people in Swansea Clearly, they've got to be pushed more in this direction because to me, comedy, you know, it makes you think differently about something. That's all I'm trying to do is make you see something from a different... I'm not... Look, I've never... I've never... I don't mind if people do airplane travel jokes. I've never done them. I don't find anything funny about airplane travel in economy particularly. But also, <laughs> it's like I'm not, I'm not going to waste an audience's time talking about something they already know about. Yeah. Also, airplane food, it's not that bad. And also, it's like we have so little time on stage. It's, you know, it's You've got to make that boom, that impact. Well, this audience has done a lot to get there. They've found sitters. They've found parking. They've found transport there. Oh, they've cut their day in half to come watch you. And I think that's a privilege. And I think that there are thousands of comics out there that would like this 18-minute set on stage at the Comedy Store on a Friday night. I'm not going to waste it. I think it's offensive to everybody. To me... It's one show in a thousand, and I want it to be as important as all those other shows are. But for the audience, for some people, it's the first time they've seen stand-up, and they see that comedy store sign on the wall, or they see any. You know, they've, they've, they've gone to a local pub, and they think, oh, these guys are going to be great. I really want to enjoy this. So I, I want them to. And to me, an enjoyment is, you know, tweaking it and pushing them a bit. That's what I enjoy. Do you think the, the, the idea that people get offended has increased with the rise of social media and this kind of culture that we live in now where everyone has a voice and if someone's offended, then that should just be taken as gospel that something needs to be shut the fuck down. Well, I do think uh, you are uh, guilty until proven innocent in showbiz, apparently, especially if you're a man older than me working for the BBC. But I also (laughs) do think that um, since 9-11, in the US in particular, people think that all their opinions are of equal importance including the opinion of the performers. The, the fortunate thing is I have the microphone that usually works. So I'm going to win the argument, mostly because most of the audience can't hear the heckle. They only hear my response. Yeah. Also, an audience is there to see a show, not that guy in the second row who's had too many drinks mm-hmm. or that lady who doesn't like the N-bomb you've just dropped. So, you know, I think, so, I think the problem with social media is Everything's filmed, you know, although, you know, the Nazis dealt with that. That's the biggest crime they did was film everything they did. So um, that's why they're in so much trouble still, <laughs> although they're hugely popular on cable networks here. But what I'm saying is because everything can be filmed now, I think it makes some comics more careful. And I do notice that after coming here since 1994, I do notice that I see fewer alternative acts on the circuit. That might also be because... Comedy is a bigger business now, and people want to choose it now instead of stumbling into it. 
and they choose it like they choose law or medicine and they're very focused some of these young performers and they want success and they want it now and they can start making a living in the UK if, if they're successful within about two years yeah. which is good and um, I think is that different to when when you started I just fell into it I mean and a lot of people I, a lot of people I knew did oh yeah how did, you, how did you just fall into it I was an actor and I'd written uh, I was working I was working as a stand up in San Francisco at a small gay and lesbian performance space but I was doing plays and movies and commercials because San Francisco was being used a lot by LA to film stuff okay. it was their second location at that time much more affordable what, what, what for them what year was this 90 but from like 91 to 94 I was an actor I, do, okay. I was doing plays and I had an agent finally and I got in a couple of films and I was a really I was a commercial type 20 early 20s nerdy boy next door type so I got all these TV ads for that time when you in showbiz is weird because the minute you start working you start working a lot yeah because suddenly somebody oh we need that guy from that ad you know it just saves them a lot of time so I was doing that and then the comedy club I was kind of hanging out in and doing shows at I was enjoying it but I wasn't hardly making any I said a day job and the guy who ran the club who's dead now he said you should write a one person show about he said, he said I like your writing he liked me he said, you know, do an hour. And this, they were just starting one-person shows. were becoming this thing where comics, you know, were doing one-person shows, showing off their acting skills. And I put it off for a long time. And then I wrote this kind of coming-of-age show, that my coming-out thing. And it had elements of stand-up in it, but it was mostly a narrative. And it did well in San Francisco. And uh, a promoter saw it when I was over here to promote a film I had been in at a film festival. I did a bit of it. He saw it. Uh, an English promoter and said you should bring it to the Fringe in Edinburgh and I hadn't heard of that and you he hadn't heard of the Fringe no I'd never heard of it no. nobody wow. had I mean is it a not... lot, nobody I knew had okay this is in like the early 90s and I mean of was course was the Fringe not the Fringe back then no, no. Not, not to people I knew okay. not, to, not to 25 year old stand-up comics I mean Greg Proops had heard of it and performed at it and yeah. I knew Greg vaguely so I asked him about it whilst he was in San Francisco and he, he gave me a, a bit of a rundown but it still sounded like a very small thing. Yeah. So I showed up thinking I was performing it like a line in, in a tiny... Anyway, it was, I, I'm glad I didn't know. Then there was no internet. So I'm glad I couldn't research it. And I'm glad. Because yeah. if I had, I would have been really intimidated. <clears throat> you put, I, how big was the venue that you ended up performing it in? It was a church. I don't think it's there anymore. And it wasn't one of the main three. Okay. And um, I was performing in an espresso bar. And um, I'd had a, one preview... And everyone had gotten up en masse at one point and walked out during the preview, oh. about halfway through the show. Except for two men in the front row that were clearly together. And I said to them, isn't that weird? And they said, we think you're fucking disgusting. Now just finish up. <laughs> wow. Why did they stay? Because they're victims. Anyway, so <laughs> they stayed. And I finished. And I told my manager at the time, and he said, you should not do that show. And I, and so this was in, that was at the Fringe? Yeah. And I yeah. said, look, I paid for my, oh, this is what, I said, look, I paid for my flight. I'm going to do what I want. Yeah. I don't know where I got there. You're there for the month. You yeah. Might, so I went well my first it. night to do the show and um, I won the Perrier. That's so, great. Yeah. So because of that, <laughs> I only mention it as part of the narrative because I got management from that and then they threw me on the road. I'd never done circuit comedy before. I'd never been on the road, really. And suddenly after three years later, I played every fucking, you know, shithole off the scenic route in the UK. And I said to my management, we've got, I changed management. And the new ones who picked me up said, you've got to start all over again with us. They put me back on the road again. This is what killed Judy Garland. It, I, this is why comics become drunks and drug addicts. You are left <laughs> on the road in the UK. This is 20 devices. years ago. Well, you pull into a town on a Thursday. You do your show. You wake up. You don't know where you are half the time. 
Sunday rolls around, there's nothing's open. You're eating out of vending machines for three days. Take a train back to London, wash your do your laundry, go back out. You're playing Reading on a Thursday, blah, blah. You know, you're making enough money to survive. Mm -hmm. I turned 30 and I didn't know what town, I mean, I, it's just like, it sounds like a country western song. I was just ready to shoot myself. But I loved the onstage part. But the waiting, the waiting and the, tr oh, and then. Um, yeah, Alice Cooper said that, he said, you know, when, when, you're, when you're doing a show, you do it for an hour and a half, two hours in the evening. But then what do you do during the day night. but drink? There's nothing to do but drink. Also, when, you're, when I was doing those sets, I was headlining. I was doing some one-person shows, but mostly I was doing a 30-minute set at night, yeah. waiting all day in Hull. And um, <laughs> in my next town, Huddersfield, something to look forward to. So these are fine places. I'm just saying, for a stranger, plus, had I been younger, I was about thir 32 or 33 by then. Yeah. Had I been... 22 or 23 and this had been my dream and I've been watching George Carlin for 20 years like a lot of comics I'd known like they had just laid in bed dreamt about being on, a, on the road but that hadn't been my dream I started as an actor I, I liked working with people I liked the creative process I liked a month long rehearsal I liked hanging out with other performers I, I liked the camaraderie ship and I liked California where I was from and I liked visual beauty and I liked good food and I, and I had a certain standard of living in my head that I wanted I was you know heading into my mid-30s. And, and um, I met some women on the road who didn't want to be on the road, and I understood why they didn't. Because I didn't want that, that lifestyle. I'm not saying it's bad. Why Listen, did you stick at it for so long then? Because it was all I could do. I was unskilled labor. It's not, I'm not saying, and I'm not saying it's, it's an intrinsically bad thing. Yeah. Just, it wasn't suited to my personality. Okay. I, I don't drink, and I got lonely in clubs, and I didn't want to hang out in a club and drink with strangers. I did try for a couple years, and then I got hepatitis. And I couldn't drink for a year. I gave it up. And then when I went back to it, I hated it. So I just, that was 97. I just stopped. And if, you, it, believe me, if you're not drinking in the social scene in the UK, it's boring out there. Yeah. Bars, if you're sober, dull. And um, I just, I sound like I'm complaining. It was a great, a great chance for me to learn a great skill. It really was. And I was very fortunate. Press-wise, in this country, in terms of publicity, I've always been incredibly fortunate. I've had a couple of stinker reviews, but mostly... The press have been not only friends of mine, but very supportive of my work. The audiences, you know, when I first started here, I was out. I had been closeted in the U.S. for a little while, out eventually, but it was never a problem here. I mean, I'd heard it might be, and I'd heard this and that from people. Listen, it, it, whatever problem I had with my coming out on stage, it was my problem. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter. I would go to places Middlesbrough was my first paid gig before I won the pair. And I was told, oh, Middlesbrough. Listen, working class audiences Middlesbrough were fantastic. That was, it was one of the best weekends I, I've, I'd had as I started. It was never, I never had that. I had that setback in the U.S. definitely many, many times. Many, many times. I was told to my face. Well, don't come out. Be closeted. You don't need to. You can hide it. I don't book women. Why should I find you funny? I, oh, shit like that. Jesus. I, and much worse than that. But yeah, that, that was so just professionally you were you were in again. Oh, so you're out. It's never the audiences. Never they, the audience. okay. they don't give a shit. Although the worst response I've ever had to my coming out on stage is from gay men and gay women who've been the most physically violent. Really? By far. What have they got a problem with? Zoe Lyon does a gig near Brighton that is I I had to have um the security escort me out and call me a cab and walk me to the taxi with the women standing outside jeering at me and throwing stuff as I'm walking, threatening me. Gay, gay women? Oh, yeah. 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 
This is gay, recent, gay audiences, recently or... This is about four years ago. Gay audiences uh, can be, you know, like any audience. Although they want to be... What's different where I'm concerned is they want to see the, their minority community positively portrayed on stage. And I don't think they think, when they, when they respond that way, I don't think they think I'm doing that enough, obviously. But that aside, again, that's been an incredibly rare experience. Yeah. And Zoe was... Angry at them and inc- very apologetic. And I thought about going back. She and I have laughed about it. She's a brilliant comedian and she yeah. can handle those people. And she, obviously, I struck a nerve that was not. I probably made a mistake. I probably didn't play the room right. Mm-hmm. I was probably lazy and presumptuous. In, a gay in what room. Way? What do you mean, well, play the room? I probably thought a gay room, I could talk about what I want. Okay. And I think I opened with some. But should you be able to? I, you know, it's hard when you open with Maddie McCann jokes. It's <laughs> See, this is the, the controversial thing. The controversial thing. But you know what? How can again? it be controversial when she's <laughs> on the front page every month when her parents have made a living off her disappearance? And they really have, haven't they? Yes, and when a lot of people have doubts about how that child disappeared. Oh. I'm not the only one. I just happen to be on the stage making jokes about it. But are you kidding? Go to a dinner party. People have a couple of drinks. Listen, Maddie McCann has been the butt of uh, either fortunately. It's the British way. Look, I was just in Berlin doing a week, 10 shows in 10 nights. We went on a comics tour of Berlin, which ended in Hitler's bunker, Right. <laughs> Which is, and they were all very solemn and sincere about stand-up comics so it's doing just, this. Well, it's a flats now, isn't it? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a parking lot. Yeah. They won't build on it. And and I told the comic after. You know, the funny thing is, if this was Britain, they would have built a comedy club on this and called it Hitler's Bunker. Yeah, and they'd be seeing. You know what I mean? Because that's the way the Germans deal with stress. So why is it this one thing? Is, is it because I'm doing it? Because I'm a form. Maybe I'm not. I'm not. I don't understand the nuance. I don't know what it is. Although, again, it's a rare experience. Look, this country has been. In, Part of the reason why my husband and I have spent so much time here is because for a while, this was the only country that would have us, you know, before the Supreme Court. You thought you needed to leave America. Yeah. I, I, he couldn't go there. They wouldn't, he applied for a tourist visa many times. They turned him down. Because he's from? Not because of where he's from. No? Because I'm his husband. Right. They don't want queers coming over there and trying to stay. And, and yes, Brazilians <laughs> are the longest overstay, the largest overstay population in the U.S. But also, it was clearly racism and homophobia. Once the Supreme Court made that choice, believe me, the American embassy in this country took a turn like 180 degrees. They invited him in like it was practically like, have a glass of wine. And they gave him a 10-year come in. You go, you just like that? Yes. Okay, well, not, not just that. We filled out the forms and paid the fee. But Obviously, yes. they didn't throw it off and say, Scott, we got it now. Well, I mean, it was, you know, and, and in the UK, you follow our experience, at least has been as middle class white men. I must be aware of our experience has been if you follow the rules. The government gives you a chance to, you know, st- and so really for the UK, I, I, I said this off air when you got here, the UK is just less savage to me mm. about religion and culture. It just is. So, you know, I loved playing New York. New York audiences are fantastic. One benefit that you can't do, expect here, is you can do all the accents you want. In this country, especially in places like Chiswick, you do an accent, people think you're racist. It's just, it's just the way that white, white, rich people try to defend their minority friends, whom they have none of, by the way. <laughs> And um, they jump to the defense of, you know, of a, a sub-Saharan African person if you try to do their accent. But in the U.S., you have to do the accent because the room is full of those people. You've got Hondurans and people from Belize and people from South America and people from Chinese provinces. You've got Japanese. You've got, and you've got to do each accent in particular because New Yorkers love it, including their own accent. Yeah. Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens are all different. So it's very exciting to learn all that. And I think... The great challenge of stand-up, when people say, oh my God, like you asked earlier, this is where the start of thing, our audience is more PC. Actually, it's good. 
overall because it makes it easier for women and gay men to be on stage and minority comics in this country uh, everywhere okay everywhere look like I told you what I went through when I started I tried to get booked in the mainstream comedy club in my hometown San Francisco a room I had ripped apart several times on open mics I was a radio personality already the radio the CBS was putting me on the radio to force me down the throats of local clubs so they'd have to book me and when I talked to this promoter who now is hugely successful and runs a touring company that encompasses the world and we're still friends and he's from here when I mentioned to him I'd like to play his club he's the one who said I don't book women why should I find then he said I'll bring my girlfriend if she laughs at you then I'll know you're funny because I couldn't expect to be found I c- you can expect me to find you funny because you're a gay man now whether or not he was you know what I mean you never <laughs> was he know joking or I don't know he's from here so maybe but still you don't say that to a new comic who's terrified to even approach you at a Christmas party yeah. you don't I don't know you we're not friends I, I would you know Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> you know, I never hear. Really, I only had to do a five-minute audition for the comedy store, and they started booking me right away. Of, having said that, I was in Mrs. Doubtfire, which it just opened here. It was a huge success. But, you know, this country, I, you know, the, the English never welcome anyone with open arms. But I, as much, with as much warmth as a British can churn <laughs> is what I experienced when I came over here. And I was happy to say that after a time, I felt uh, every stage chance I had here I felt privileged and I, watching my husband work in a comedy club he, seems more, he sees more comedy now than I do and I, I meet a lot of young comics through him when I go to pick him up or I hang out in his club or I do his club and a lot of these guys are, are, I think are doing really well now are, are living on housing benefit or, or are homeless sleeping on a night bus I'm not kidding you sleeping at Terminal 5 or on a friend's couch or renting a room. And these poor straight boys are never going to get laid. A woman is not going to fuck you if you rent a room. But having also, that aside, what I mean is they'll have no personal lives for quite some time. They're really struggling to feed themselves. And these are guys that work all the time. And that's here where the wages are really high. Is that the norm for... It is now. But it wasn't when you... you No, there were fewer comics and there was more work, I guess. I don't know. You know, I hear that work is diminishing a bit in the UK. Some clubs are closing. Some pubs are struggling. Well, pubs are closing. And, and more are closing than are opening. So I guess people are struggling. I turn down work all the time. I'm lazy. And I'm old. But <laughs> I do notice for some people that, you know, it's, it's harder for a younger generation than me, a bit younger, maybe five or ten years younger than me, who want my place because I'm not going to give it up. And the, the generation of my generation of comics who became successful probably about 20 years ago and are still around, we're not giving our slots up. So those guys who want our slots are going to have to probably wait another 10 years. So it's, it's like that, I guess, for them. There's that. But also, I just think there's more comics and fewer work. And I think the festivals now in the UK, I speak mostly of Edinburgh Fringe, you know, it's a trade fair now. Arguably, that's a good thing in some ways. You get, you, you get the word out there about who you are much faster. Um, the social media helps. Twitter is ferocious in Edinburgh. People review your show right after they see it. Mm. It's amazing. The, this, the word still spreads, which is great for performers. But also, you have to expect to spend 10 grand when you grow up. You're not going to make money. In the old days when I started, the management took, if you lost money, which I didn't tend to, but if you did, the management took the hit. Yeah. The performer didn't. Now, you spend half the year after Edinburgh paying that bill off. That's why they're struggling. That's why they're sleeping in their cars or living with their parents. Or they've got wives who have good jobs. A lot of comics I know have that. My wife <laughs> works in a comedy club. Not a good financial choice. But anyway, he still fucks like a truck, so A for effort. But, you um, know, it's not, uh, 
easy. It used to be, I think, if you were good. I, th I came over as a finished product, luckily. Mm -hmm. So I was able to make a living right away. Yeah, you didn't start out here. So right. I guess your experience is completely different to exactly. everyone else's. And the benefit at the time was Josie's, the club I worked in, was open until about 1999. So for those five years of my coming over for the Fringe, I could go back to San Francisco, write a new show, test it at Josie's for a month, get all the kinks worked out, then bring it back over here. So even when I came back for a new show each year, the show looked finished. And in yeah. those days, shows didn't. In those days... It was expected that your show would be a bit bumpy. Not anymore. They want a finished product now, too. But then, but mine, you know, I think I always seemed, to some people, at least, this is what critics said. I'm only quoting what the press said. That I seemed always prepared and maybe as a half step ahead of my competitors. Not that I see comedies being competitive. I don't at all. I agree with Frankie Boyle. I think we're all different. What we do is all different. Yeah. And we're all from very different backgrounds. I think comparing us is strange. And useless for an audience. But at the time, I think, where selling tickets was concerned in the fringe, my reputation was being a starched shirt, was being clean and, and read, ready to wear. And um, it had to be that way for me. I couldn't, I couldn't waste the audience's time. just couldn't do it. It goes back to the, the thing you said before about it. It's a privilege to be on stage. Well, so, so if you're going to be on stage, lucky, you might as well. I'm lucky to be there. Yeah. And I assume the audience is smarter than me or else I wouldn't do it. So I want the level of the show to at least be interesting enough to maintain their attention for 55 minutes. It's very, it's very huge ego to think you could do that. Yeah. It is. Have you always been... I mean, do you consider yourself a, an attention seeker? Yes. What was it about kid. being on stage or oh, being no, an actor that... I used to run that was appealing? House. Yeah, I used to entertain my family and stuff with jokes when I was a kid. But I was speaking of verbal defense because my brother was very physical with me. And um, I also had been made, you know, I, I, I attracted attention at a young age because I was very tall and verbal and um, real, real nerdy before nerdy was fashionable. Yeah. Like real buck teeth, you know, six feet in the fifth grade when I was like 14, six feet tall, really skinny um, and really loud because my family is Italian, but also because uh, I was always the kid who raised his hand. I always had an answer in school. And um, I wasn't physical in any way. I would, the opposite of sport. My father was a was very into it. My brother was, and I was not that. Mm -hmm. I was the other guy. So I just accentuated that other guy kind of profile of myself by being kind of jokey and uh, defending myself verbally from people. I'm sure I set it all up myself. I'm sure I got in trouble because I wanted to. I wanted to be noticed. I think I was just insecure like other kids, but that's the way I dealt with it. Was just by turning it into a joke or a gag, or always at my defense, always at my expense. Though, made a lot of fun of myself. Yeah, I I had a similar growing up experience. I grew up fat, oh, so I had I had to overcompensate. Oh. I was a fat kid, so I had to. <laughs> so I had to. Honey, he was a fat kid. Oh, we love fat kids. <laughs> but I had to overcompensate. I had to. People weren't going to like me because of my physical appearance. Yeah, I was going to make them like me because of the jokes I could tell or the, the mischief I can, I can cause yeah, yeah, yeah. in school. I was always the joker. Yeah. Well, when you're, when you're, when you're you know, if you're fat or when you're, you're big at 12 or you're, you're six feet tall, you know, you're taller than your teachers. Yeah. It's, it's weird. And, you, and in a way, tall kids are treated like adults. And I wasn't ready for that. And I knew I was gay and that set me apart, obviously. Made me try to protect myself. 
put a wall up with the jokes. Mm. And um, I had a secret life going on that I wanted to protect even more. Camouflage with, you know, ridiculing myself. So no one would suspect that I was gay or that I was attracting the attention of men tw- two or three times my age. Wow. Which is very common then for me where I lived. I don't so know you, about other people. You were attracting attention? You weren't taking it? Oh, I was very busy. You were busy? Very busy at the age of 15. After school specials. Oh, yeah. And um, I just, I think I just wanted a bit of guidance and affection like everybody at that age. And uh, people weren't so uh, conscious of adult attention to our kids then. Mm. And um, and this was this back in San Francisco. Yeah, in, a suburb in like the eighties. I wish it was the eighties. No. It would have been the seventies. I graduated from high school in eighty one, so it would have been like seventy nine, eighty. And I would go to family functions, and friends of family members would give me their numbers. Guys in their thirties who had kids and wives there would give me their phone number. Wow. It wasn't. I was sixteen, but looked twenty, twenty one. I was tall, had big hair, looked like a girl, probably a tall girl. And these, but it was, was it quite obvious? Yes, and embarrassing. Again? In front of my sister, would be like, "Why did that?" Why did Richard get... I'm like, I don't know. And um, <laughs> and these guys, they would be drunk at a Sunday fet and they would make no bones about, here's my, call me if you want, we'll, we'll go play tennis. Wow. Okay. Do you like tennis? I was a tennis player at the time and I'm sure we had talked about that. I don't know. And uh, yeah, it was weird. And obviously, you know, I'm not going to pretend that, you know, I probably, in my, however a 15-year-old flirts is what I was doing. Although, of course, it's incredibly inappropriate for a a 49-year-old guy, you know. But anyway, that's, it was like that then. And um, it was, uh, you know, I I kind of think maybe I was lucky in a couple of ways. But there was a chance then for me to explore it on my own without... Well, the nature of my family. My mother was a single parent. She was away working a lot. But I didn't have someone on me, like breathing down my neck, a parent, like, where have you been? What have you been doing? You know, my mother trusted me enough and was too busy, really, to keep tabs on me. And she allowed me to kind of, she probably knew Hmm. vaguely what I was up to, but she allowed me to explore it myself. Thank God. Do you think if it was a kind of pity the kids have a lot of social media uh, restrictions? Well, you know, they can find everything out. Yeah. And I think when you, it's like when you try to self-diagnose online, you get terrified. It's like, oh my God, I've got, you wait for cancer to roll down the screen. I think when kids look at other kids' personal experiences and stories, it must be terrifying to them because that's not their circumstance. Mm. And their, their story is completely different. So I'm glad that whatever story I created for myself when I was that age is my own. Do you think that's, do you think your story is kind of unique because it was San Francisco, which is in you know, it's a stereotypically very gay well, environment. I didn't live in the city limits, though. I lived in a suburb that was right. kind of like, it would have been like living somewhere in Kent in the 70s. Compared to London. Yeah. Okay. And it would have been like, you know, high school was not cool. about. I mean, now the high school's in Marin, where I grew up, the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge. It's very wealthy. It is now. It wasn't then. It was middle class then. But it's a very white, wealthy suburb now, San Francisco. Mm. And the kids now, like the gay kid is the, He's the valedictorian and the, the captain of the football team. In those days, I mean, it's very, it's like beyond open-minded now. Because I have friends whose kids, and my sister, her daughter, they all go to high school there. So I keep in touch with those people. I, I perform in that area a lot when I'm home in San Francisco. Because I know how those people behave and I know how they speak. Yeah. Um, but, and my husband loves it there. We're thinking about maybe moving there someday. But anyway, it's beautiful. But the kids are treated 
they're pampered now around their, their sensuality and sexuality. But in those days, you were meant to hide it. And kids at high school were fucking cruel. And if they got a whiff of you being in any way different, not just gay, but anyway, they would humiliate. I mean, that's when punk was starting in San Francisco. So all my friends that probably were gay used punk as a sort of a... We an would, well, tight, 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 makeup, <laughs> Bowie. We'd be in San Francisco on a Friday night club, Mabuhay, dancing, snorting coke and drinking whiskey and thinking we were adults and hanging out with probably a bunch of gay men who were really fun, actually, and completely <laughs> non-threatening and having a great time, you know. But probably what intrigued me about it a lot was because the guys were, I was getting attention. And then I go back to high school and, oh, I just thought the kids I went to school was, was fucking boring. All they wanted to do was drink in the parking lot or oh, God, or steal their parents' pills. Who cares, you know? And um, to me, you know, I think it, the, the uniqueness was partially about me just wanting to escape. And is that what acting eventually became? Yeah, the whole thing. I mean, the, uh, the reason I joined the drama department at school was because they were a bunch of nerds and freaks and queers. Yeah. And we, none of us knew that, but we knew it, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was in, in, intuitive. And we, 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 we sniffed each other out. And they didn't humiliate me. And then once I did a play and I was the nerd in the play, then the football players who used to come to the place to hit him like girls, the actresses were pretty. It, those parties became sporty and artsy. They mingled. And then those athletes who'd been making fun of me, oh, you're the weird guy. And they saw that the girls liked me. So they, that was their way in yeah. by befriending me. And I didn't mind. So well, I it found- kept, It kept them off your back. Yes. Yeah so to speak, and it, um, as much as I wanted them on my back. And also, in a way, I found my niche, right? So, And they were able to categorize, categorize me the way that some institutions in the UK, namely the BBC, categorize minority groups now. It's not that different. You know, the word yeah. gay is not a, a gay word for gay people. It's for straight people, so they know how to behave around us. Hmm. It's, a, it's an identifier, so they feel comfortable because gay has all sorts of social characteristics attached to it. To most people, gay really means white, middle class, disposable income, single, or if it's a couple, they're married and they're thinking of adopting and they live in Highgate. You know, that's a gay person. It's still it's a, a cultural people. thing of as opposed to a, a sexuality. It's the same reason that, you know, people want to know, people feel uncomfortable, all this struggle, even within the LGBTIQ community around transgender people. Because people don't know exactly how to behave around them. Mm. They don't have a lot of experience around transgender people. And, they, and they'd like you, as a transgender, if you are, to identify yourself particularly. And a lot of transgender people I know don't want to identify themselves as either male or female or even transgender. Oh. They want to be whatever they are. Well, the whole they, point is, they, they, you know, if they're transitioning in whichever direction, they just want to be known as what they've... What, well, you know, just, if they're transitioned with the F to M, they just want to be known as M. Well, or or neither, because yeah. to some people I know, it's not a transition. They've always been this way. Yeah. There is no transitional period. This has always been who they are. So the transition really is in the people who are talking to them, trying to figure out how to behave. Mm. It's an awkward period, I think, and an mm. interesting one. But we were talking earlier, that's my job, is to find out how to communicate with these people. And in a PC, quote-unquote, world of comedy playing universities that some comics are afraid of because students can be touchy about certain remarks. But really... Snowflakes. Well, of course they are, and yeah. we all are. And in a way, honestly, it's no more touchy than gay men and gay women were 30 years ago about the mm. words. But also, 
And, and I think arguably fairly enough, fair enough, really, particularly for women, particularly in the comedy clubs, because women were and have been in so many clubs still the butt of jokes. But also, I think it's a chance for comics to find a new way of communicating communicating ourselves to a new generation of comedy lovers. If they're there, it's, they are there to see the show. They're not mostly there to judge you or film you or get you in trouble. They want to laugh. Yeah. And really, as as a person who's performing, it's your job as a writer. It's the job of any writer is to find out how to communicate your ideas to an audience that doesn't know who you are. So to tell a joke when you've been doing stand-up for 40 years, I'm thinking of someone in particular, and then being offended and going on TV and criticizing the audience for not laughing at that joke. And then you tell the joke, and frankly, the joke isn't funny. You think they've lost touch? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily? But they might be being lazy, okay. or again, presumptuous, or maybe they have lost touch. Or maybe they just don't want to make the effort. Or maybe that joke just isn't funny, and just don't tell it again until you get it funny. Or maybe it is homophobic. And maybe you've been surprisingly homophobic for 40 years because you're a straight guy from the East Coast and you don't know any different. And no one has ever asked you to be any different until now. Yeah. Were I that person, I would consider it a creative challenge. I wouldn't get on the back of the audience. Now, having said that, I, do, I have blamed audiences before for bad shows, although I realized halfway through the blame that actually it's probably me. And now that I have a husband in the business who tells me, Kupuro, you you were lazy tonight or <laughs> you were quiet they couldn't hear you or whatever and yeah. usually I, he's right yeah again I don't see the point in blaming anyone especially when I do this for a living and I'm sure I'm going to get a chance to try it again so do you think and I asked I asked David Morgan about this when he was on the podcast do you think that most comedians have a shelf life and they're always the last ones to see that they've kind of gone past the sell by date well I think it depends on who you are. I mean, Carlin worked till he was dead. Um, yeah. A lot of but was he as funny and relevant as Yes, he, he was. Yeah. I think yeah. a lot of people agree that he was. And if you see um, some comics' videos from the 70s who were good, um, people that are dead now, they hold up. They're live shows. Yeah. And I think... People, people who like Carlin, Pryor. Yeah, Pryor, definitely. Yeah. Pryor is someone I'm thinking of in particular. And I think that um, particularly American stand-ups who... Are, are all about social consciousness. can be, especially from the 70s, were about social consciousness mm. and, and very particular word use. Some of those words are still considered offensive now. And they were trying to explain the importance of them and try to get the audience over their minds a bit. So I just think it depends on that. I mean, some, some comics can look dated. Some Edinburgh shows, when they go on the road, cannot succeed because they already look dated because they were in a particular style about a particular issue that even six months later seems old and tired. I've had that problem. So I think... Is that a new phenomenon? No, or again, just, is that no, with I the rise of social media where things no. just go so quick these days? No, I think with live performance, you've always taken a chance. Yeah. You've always taken a risk. As a performer and audience, as an audience member, you never know what's going to happen next, which should be part of the thrill of it all. But that's true of any creative industry. Who knows if the film that they're filming down the road, I don't know, now yeah, is going to sure. be relevant in but six the months when they release is, it. The difference is with a film... It's not, it's, not, it's not live. It's not touching in, in, in a particular way. But also, I think, if you're a stand-up, it's, it's assumed when you're being watched, the audience assumes you're writing your material. If, with an actor, you take a script out of their hands, they don't know what to say. Yeah. So actors can have sell-by dates when their looks go. That's why their sell-by dates occur. Mm -hmm. Writers, famously, Tennessee Williams said, have 10 years. And in a way, if you look at his 
successful period, it was about 10 years long. Okay. Playwrights. And I think that's because they're not on the road hammering away. I think if you're a live performer, a stand-up comic, and you're, you keep your ear to the grind, and you're listening at what's being talked about, and you're able to reflect that in your act, there's no reason why, I'm hoping, you can't go on and on and on. I mean, I complain about this sometimes. I don't see a lot of comics over the age of 60 on the road, but there are several. I work with them, and they're doing just fine. Yeah. And um, I think the only person that worries about aging is the performer themselves. And if I bring it up to an audience, they start to think about it. But unless I do, I don't think most performers think, this guy sounds old or this guy sounds out of touch. Do they, honey, at your club think I'm old and out of touch? Thanks, honey. It's not really. That cry of support. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, not really. So um, I think, you know, again, you know, with the, with the arts, I think, it, I think the reason people leave it or even the reason comedy clubs close down is because, not because there isn't an audience for what you do, but because it's hard. Mm. And I think after a time, you know, famously, when Judy Garland was nominated for an Academy Award for A Star is Born in 1950, whatever it was, she called Deanna Durbin, another actress she'd been competitive with in the 1930s as a child star, and told Deanna Durbin, who she'd always been jealous of, I just got nominated for Academy Award. And Deanna Durbin said, are you still in that silly business? <laughs> because to Durbin, she'd gotten out of it and didn't give a shit. Yeah. And we struggle, worried about our next performance, when most of the population doesn't care. Yeah. By the way, less than 10% of the British population go to live performance, and less than 1% of that Go to live stand-up. It might be a little bit more now because the big, the big rooms are much bigger now than they were 10 years ago. I mean like O2 and stuff with yeah. John Bishop. But still, very few people see live stand-up and they don't even know who most of us are and they don't, they don't care. If they're in a comedy club, they just want... They don't care if you're green or fat, sorry, or tall or <laughs> young or old or, or gay or Jewish, sorry, or whatever you are. <laughs> they just want to laugh. So I, I always assume as I'm walking on the stage... I always think they're already on my side. Because they're in the room and they've come to see you. Not necessarily even to see me. They come to see a comedy show. Yeah. And I like doing an hour in front of people that are there to see me, like at the Soho Theater. But I love doing an hour. I don't have to love. I love doing an hour in a town I haven't played before. Because I can do everything, whatever I want. Yeah. And I assume that if I fuck up, I can get them back. i got enough time. 20-minute sets. you got to be a bit careful. You lose them. You may never get them back because you got three minutes left. But in an hour, hour and 20, you can really spread it and really uh, push them away and then pull them back. I really like that. I like the free song. I like them thinking that um, when is this faggot going to shut his mouth is what I like the audience thinking. And, you know, not for another 30 minutes. So. Do you, you prefer doing it live? You don't, you don't like doing television so much? Oh, no, I do TV and I like it. It's fun in a different way. But with stand-up, it's a bit treacherous on TV because you hand your set to an editor yeah. who may know nothing about who you are and what you do. And they're, they're getting instructions from somebody else. So so many voices involved. Uh, when you see your set on TV, usually they, they primp it and stuff it with laughter so it looks fine. Yeah. But you never know. And stand-up on TV is completely a different beast. It's not, it's not stand-up live. It's totally different. Mm. And I, 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 you know, it, it helps us sell tickets when we go on the road. I mean, not me so much, but some like Whitehall. He's on TV a lot. So when he goes on the road, it helps him get people in to see him. That's great. But I think that the live performance should be different from what they see on television. Because TV's, you know, relatively free. You pay 15, 18, 20 pounds. You want to see something, I'm assuming that, you know, knocks you off your seat a little bit. You don't want to burn your set either. 
You know, people worry about that. I don't. You can do what you want. People yeah. don't remember what they've seen. I mean, if you're really famous like Whitehall and they've seen you on TV a number of times and you've told that joke, maybe they'll But Jack's really prolific and he writes all the time because he loves it. So yeah. that's the joy, doing new stuff. I mean, I think the audience can tell when you're doing new stuff because you're excited about it. It's like having a baby. It's like, look at this. <laughs> look at the photos of my newborn. Um, so going back to when you were an actor, um, did you did you kind of enjoy that kind of process more then than you do now? Do you I mean no, do you, now do, you do, do much acting now? I do some and it's like it's like a vacation because you know other people tell you what to do and you just hit the light, you do it, you hit your spot and then people tell you how great you are. They buy you a glass of white wine. I just uh, did a, a Radio 4 series where I played Andy Warhol for four shows. Really great, really exhausting recording process. You did, the, you did the voice? Yeah. Hadn't done that kind of thing in a long time. It's great. They were wonderful. Real actors, real, real actors. Like, yeah. you know, the real thing. Like, you know, um, silk scarves and shit. And, and <laughs> Lovies. The, oh, theater credits. And real directors. Like, and great. Great experience. But, you know, afterward, they, 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 they give you lunch and they tell you you're great. Not like stand-up. I mean, really, you know, you, you cross the line with an audience the wrong way. And that lesbian is going to throw ice at you and hit you in the temple. Seriously, that's happened to me. You, you never know when the tables are going to turn over. Literally, the tables are going to be turned over. Is that more thrilling? Surely that's more thrilling. That kind of I living mean, on the edge type thing. I just want, look, I just rather they sit with their hands folded and listen. You perform in Finland or parts of Scandinavia. They're so well behaved. So, yeah. Mrs. Doubtfire. Tell me about that. How did you actually get the part? Oh, um... I fucked Robin Williams. No, I um, <laughs> everybody else on that set. No, of course he was lovely. He produced the film, and uh, uh, I'd auditioned for it a few times, and um, and then I I ran into him in a comedy club, and the comedy club owner said, "Tell him you've auditioned for his film." I went, "No, Tom, I'm not gonna." No, just tell him. I said, "Robin, uh, who was." So lovely. I just didn't want to infringe. You know, I didn't want to be this pushy. I'm sure he was, you know, anyway, he was incredibly, hugely famous. I'm not going to, I just have never, in showbiz, I've never asked for a favor, which is probably a bad thing. I'm mm -hmm. sure it's a bad thing. But I've never put myself in the position of being rejected that way because I'm too fragile. And also the idea of being that story in the car on the way to home, like, guess what this guy did? I don't, eh. being that story is, it, it's so cringy making to me. And, um, but anyway, I told him, I, and he said, oh, which part? And I said, oh, you know, the, 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 the gay uncle's lover. Oh, that shouldn't be a problem. And then I got a call. Wow. I was in New York visiting a friend, and they said, we need to see you again. I'm like, you know what, I'm, I, where I got this attitude, I have no idea. I said, you know, I'm in New York. I'm not flying back. So I told my, I told my manager at the time, I said, tell them either they want me or they don't. <laughs> Get her. And um, I guess they were like, Jesus, all right, well. Uh, small part doesn't matter. Anyway, so uh, then I was on the set for a week with Robin and Harvey. It was great. It was great. They were great. Robin was one of the warmest people I've ever met, and his wife and he at the time, his wife at the time, were producing the films. So it was very much a family feeling on the set, mm. which I came to expect, which you shouldn't if you're an actor because that doesn't really happen very often. And Harvey was fantastic, and he met me and he said, "Oh, you're my husband again. I'm again." I'm a chicken hawk. Do you know what chicken hawk is? <laughs> no. old, old gay man that hunts down young gay men. So oh, okay. I'm a I chicken hawk again because he'd done Torchon Trilogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with Matthew Broderick. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Quiz don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, I want his love. Is that so wrong? So anyway, I hung out in this trailer for a week and it got Hollywood gossip, which was fantastic. And then a limo drove me home. It was such a surreal experience. As your first film experience. That was your first film? Yeah, yeah to have that. To be not only be have the luck to be on the set with two brilliant comics all week. I mean, come on. Yeah. I'm you a learn lots from them. Well, they were so gracious because they knew I was a comic. And they know what that's like. And because they were comics, they were effusive and they were gregarious. And the set was fun. Were you and guys, were you riffing back and forth? Was it like Robin was. Improvisation? He, go off, go off, he improvised all the time. That was his thing. Yeah. I didn't know when the cameras were on. And the director was incredibly... Who directed it? Chris, Chris, Chris Columbus. Columbus. He was young and... And, and incredibly talented, obviously. The film was a huge, still is some people's favorite film. And yeah. Well, I was going to ask you. That was another question. So lucky. It was a lucky, one of the luckiest. Listen, I think that a lot of success in showbiz has to do with luck and timing. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be fortunate enough to fit that costume. So I got that part. And it had a lot to do with why I started getting work in the UK right away. And I know that. And, you know, you could say that, you know, oh, well, you... Luckily, on this, once you were on the set, you had the talent to do it. Yes. I fucked up my first line about 30 times, and I was sure I'd get fired. I had a line that said, he's got 5 o'clock shadow at 8.30 a.m., and you're worried about wires. And I said, the cameras were, and my hands were shaking, and I'm pulling the wires back from Robin's face, and I said, he's got shadow at 8, he's got 8, 5, he's got 5. I'm not kidding you. Until Harvey turned to me and said, calm, just calm down a little bit. And I, okay. And then I finally got the line. And then... You know, we had loads of dialogue, and I kept fucking it up. And I, I was so, because as an actor, I was so rigid in the way I meant. And they were like, let it go. And um, oh, Harvey, said they just said, just chill the fuck out. Harvey said, he said, the, the, the chance of your getting even a close-up on screen is so little anyway, so fucking lighten up. Yeah. I said, I want to go, I want to go see the dailies. And Robin said, you don't want to see the dailies. Yeah. Why? Robin said, because... It's your huge head on the screen. No, I got so Harvey and I. Harvey said, "Well, you've been warned. I'll go with you." So we went. See the dailies, and I'm like, oh, "I can't really look like that. I can't sound that way." And Robin, Harvey said, "I told you." He said, "Yes, you sound like a scared mouse. Of course you do. That's what everyone thinks they sound like on screen. Why did you go?" I said, "Because it's the dailies, and who doesn't? Come on, the dailies." <laughs> Anyway, I never Dailies went back. Dailies being when you could just see the footage that they've been that we filmed the day yeah, before, yeah. and I, and he's like, I like because I'd heard of the Dailies, I want to be part of the whole thing. He's like, you're a hired hand. The lights are more important than you. <clears throat> just hit your mark and say your lines and be quiet. Be just be quiet. Because I was like running around joking with the guys, and there was a I remember there was a sound technician with a long, weird, thin ponytail that I thought was beautiful uh. that turned out to be gay. Who knew? And um, I was joking with Come him. To the mic. I was joking with him, and <laughs> and Robin's like, all the jokey jokes, just just do your bit and fuck off because you know people got jobs today. Exactly. Don't yeah. get in the way of the lights. So really, I learned Harvey was. I mean, obviously, Harvey's, uh, you know, I've watched him perform many times in theater. And then I toured with him a little bit. He was gracious enough to take me on the road with him. First time I played Big Rooms. And um, I've never seen an audience. It's like when I watched Julian Clary a little bit. Because huh? the audience is mostly heterosexual hmm. and, and a lot of young people. And they're on the edge of their, ch they just wanted him to hug them. Julian, I know that Julian, at, 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 in the title of his current show, it says Mints. He's a very warm performer on stage, very ingratiating 
very clever. The way, and of course, Harvey has that voice and that, that demeanor. He just is like a mom. Like, he's just going to hug you. And his timing is impeccable. He can make a joke work out of anything. And he's got really good writers. Anyway, watching him on set and in live, I just admired him so much because I don't have that sort of warmth with an audience. I can't hold them in that way. And uh, he really, I learned a lot on that set. And he was forthcoming of a lot of information, which I don't know, again, if that's common on sets. I assume maybe it is sometimes, maybe it isn't, but he really was. And we went for an ice cream, Robin and I and Harvey, and these kids were jumping on Robin. They recognized just his voice on the street. And he took it all in stride. It was really a great first experience. I mean, my other, my other ones were all right. How did, yeah, how did that compare to, to Star Wars? It was terrifying. Star Wars was terrifying. Because it's Star Wars. And it's, and it's not like you were in a, in a suit. It was just your voice, right? No, of course we were. We were in makeup for five hours. We were. <laughs> really? Yeah. They just didn't use our heads in the end because we didn't fit our bodies. Oh, okay. Because in, 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 you're in episode one, aren't you? Uh-huh, uh-huh. You're, the, you're with Greg Proops and you're the uh-huh, radio, uh-huh. The, the commentators for the podcast, the, uh-huh, uh-huh. the uh-huh. pod race. Uh-huh. But it's CGI in the film. Yeah, they did. Yeah. In the end, he had to, I think. Well, obviously, me and he had to. Yeah. But that was that literally just... Uh, but we filmed the scenes. You actually filmed the scenes oh, yeah. as you two in makeup. In Hatties. I filmed my scenes in Hatties in makeup on two chairs with the blue screen in back. On chairs like these, teetering on a, a wooden block. With, with Greg uh, at the same time. With Greg next to me, yeah. So and, that must have been great. But George was there. And I'm like, hey, George. <laughs> and uh, I hadn't memorized the lines because they were too complex. The language was very particular. It was yeah. like learning a foreign language. And I didn't want to mess it up because of the legacy of Star Wars. So I asked for cue cards. And Lucas said, you want cue cards on a movie set? I said, is that not common? He said, no, not the movies I've done. But I'll get them for you. So we had cue cards. And um, I wanted to get it right. It's not, it's not Hatties. Anyway, so. Um, What's Hatties? Where's that? It's Sorry. the language I spoke in the film. Oh, that's the Job of the Hut. Okay. I'm one of his oh, accolades. Right. Hatties. Yes, I, I speak Hatties. I've had people. Yeah, I should know that being a beat. Well, Star Wars conventions, <laughs> people ask me to just speak it all the time. And um, anyway, there's an English to Hatties dictionary. So anyway, anyway, so the, uh, it was really, I wanted to, you know, we were there. And then, you know, the, star, the stormtroopers were in the diner at lunch. And then. Um, and then we filmed it here in London. And then, uh, again, like with Star Wars, like with Doubtfire, I went to see the film. I thought, I'm not going to be in this. And then we're, we're in it a lot for those five minutes. Yeah. And then uh, I became an action figure. And then <laughs> I do Star Wars conventions all the time. They're hilarious. Do you and Greg go together? No, I, no. I've never been in one with Greg. I don't even know if he's ever done one. I'm not sure, but... I've done a bunch. I do when they're, you know, when they seem like they make fun, like when they're in Tokyo or Antwerp, or there was one in North Wales, which was a scream. And then, because um, you meet all these American actors, they're so precious. And they've been on maybe one season of something with two heads, who knows. And they show up at these conventions and they've got their people with them. Or, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. We're in fucking North Wales. And one says to me, where can I get uh, some gluten-free... <laughs> I, I'm lactose intolerant. I'm like, dude, seriously. 
have just a, eat the pasta and shut the fuck yeah, up. Yeah, or have a donut. You're, I said you don't. <laughs> that that thing th- that doesn't play here. Well, I try. I said it to people, but they just walk away. I'm like, yeah, that's the benefit of living in the UK. Is they walk away from your neuroses. <laughs> they don't give a shit. I, no, I just yeah, we, I, he, we, we he asked the, me. He said I need battered fried chicken without gluten. I'm not kidding you, because I'm on a what does he call it? The diet when they're eating only meat and veg, like, like oh the Atkins diet. Oh no 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 that I'd recognize. No, it was uh, paleo. The paleo. Oh, paleo, yeah, like yeah. Paleothic like paleo, like men, like cavemen. Like cavemen, yeah. I'm on a paleo diet. And he said it to me like I should know what that is. And when I, <laughs> when I did a wrinkled forehead, he said to me like I'm retarded, a paleo diet. And then as he's saying, I'm like, yeah, no, okay, yeah, I've got it. <laughs> Closet case. I didn't call him that, but I'd seen him in the hotel room, the bar the night before. Oh, yeah, a lot of these... Um, it's like, why are those two guys at the bar? Where'd they go to their rooms? They're ordering. <laughs> and then the bar staff tell me, because I joke with them, bar staff, because like, they know me from, t- some of them know me from the right stuff. So yeah. they're, they're clowning around. And they're like, oh yeah, well those guys are, they're ordering booze from the room. Are they? Uh. Yeah, they're having drinks set up to the room. Are uh. they? Yeah, they did that last night. And weirdly, the staff went to make the beds. And one of the guy's beds hadn't been, you know, they're yeah. British, so they, it's all in your window. <laughs> so anyway... It's always the muscle guys in these films, too. It's a lot of these guys who are in these... Oh, this... Anyway, I can't... I'm like, I hate out No one people. you could possibly name. Well, one of them's in those... What's that thing that's popular with the people that's been on for eight years? What, TV show? Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. The huge one that everyone sees and talks about and goes on about. You know, with the woods and the wood people and the trolls and stuff and the... It's, oh, Game of Thrones. Yes. Okay, right. There's one on that. Ah. He's big... I don't watch it. Oh, well, he's a giant. Okay. And um, <laughs> luckily, hopefully he's a top because he'll crush you. So, uh, but he was great. He and my husband were like, you know, you meet all these guys at these conventions and they're great. Um, but, you know, they got a lot of secrets. Yeah. A lot of, and, but when they get drunk at the, you know, because usually go for two days and there's a party. And you've got a panel of, of an hour and you've got time to kill. Oh, well, they get hammered in the bar upstairs at the hotel and then they start telling you eh, it, all, it all, the tears, it all comes out with actors. They can't wait to tell you. <laughs> They can't wait. I mean, we were in Albuquerque for one of them. For one of these conventions. Yeah. yeah. And we got to our hotel, and you get out of the cab, and it's a beautiful 1930s hotel where they used to move. They used to, that film. They, they film a lot of stuff in Albuquerque because it's the climate and it's cheap. Mm. But Albuquerque's where uh, that TV show about drugs with the Walter and all that stuff. The really oh, good, Breaking Bad. That's where it's shot, and yeah, that's yeah. where it's set. And it's set there for a reason because crystal meth is a huge problem there. Mm. We get out of our cab, there's police tape on one side where there was a stabbing police tape on the other there was a shooting it's three in the afternoon on a Saturday and the police are everywhere compl- armed like military in the Middle Fuck. East with full gear and my husband's from Brazil he's like are we gonna get-? and we get in the hotel <laughs> and then we see famous actors from films because they're making movies and yeah, stuff yeah. and we go to the convention and it's, uh, it's like oh American nerds outdo nerds the Japanese are the nerdiest it's like a cult here you go to play a convention like in Northern Wales and you know there's a couple of costumes, but they're, the stormtroopers turn around. You can see the white tape. You know, the British. Everything's a bit, it's a bit shit. Yeah. Which is hilarious. Yeah. And they, it's all like, oh, you like my saber? It's all, you know, it's all, <laughs> it's all, it, actually the women here are more fetishy than the men at the conventions I've noticed here. The women, the, the, the sex it up the a lot. The two conventions I've ever been to. I love comics and, and sci-fi. They're great. And they're brilliant. They're fun, but it is it is very female heavy. They they yeah. girls so really do. Yeah, yes, they really do love cosplay. They do. They yeah. Is that yeah. what they call it? They cosplay? call it cosplay. Costume play. Costume Huge. play. And they're adorable. But in America, it's like, oh man, they, it's it's a very expensive hobby. Hmm. You can tell they spend a lot of, you know, 
And um, all the actors. Anyway, but so uh, we're in Albuquerque, and I meet uh, Walter Jr., the, the guy oh, the, who had the, the cerebral palsy character yeah, yeah, yeah. from the show, who I think is one of the most beautiful men on the planet. Yeah. And I'd heard that he, in person, that he had cerebral palsy, but it was much milder. And I met him, and you would never know unless you, he leans in and talks to you, whispers in your ear, mm. and you can hear a, a, bit of a, a bit of an impediment in his speech. Yeah. But he's models for Gap now and stuff. He's so oh, oh, hot. Of course, <laughs> a line out the place to get his autograph. Yeah. I'm signing like three on a cast, and he's got 3,000 waiting. And then we go to a party that night, and he gets drunk easily because he's young and skinny. And, you know. and after a couple of drinks, oh, so flirty. He's bisexual. <gasps> Adorable. He of said he was bisexual. He is. <laughs> and, um, and why not? Why shouldn't he be? And uh, thank God he is. So then more people have a chance. Oh, uh, I would. If my husband hadn't been there, and I was single, I would have chased him around a bar table. Seriously, and I would have won because the policy. But anyway, so <laughs> so cute, and that was great. You know, um, and that's a great offshoot of having. I mean, the film was an honor to do. Obviously. Uh. Did you have to audition for it, or was it literally? Yes, we've we seen did. your tapes. No, we, we did. Greg and I went in together, and Greg did most of the talking. Thank God. <laughs> and we did a bit of an improv. Who's, of course, that's a special one of his specialties. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I used to watch him as a kid on yeah. um, Incredible. Oh, whose lines it? Anyway. When you say that to him in person, don't say the kid part. And um, <laughs> he's got an ego like like the rest of us. But anyway, it was great. And so to be part of that, you know, once in a lifetime. But then another fun part of it is to go to the convention. I mean, I started doing them. Thinking, oh, what's this going to be like? But they and must be good money. The money's fine. Yes, of course, people are very generous. Yeah. And for a lot of people, the two of them, who were in like Star Trek, not, no kidding, it's a big part of their bread and butter. I was going to say, that must be, yeah. you can have a, a complete, yeah, no, that could be your main, your main job. Definitely. Even and if you're only, you know, extra number four in the background in listen, one, in one half of an episode. In some ways, it's a benefit to have a small part because then you were just in one film and you're more unique in some ways. And yeah. people like you really like you. And so, <laughs> I mean, going to Tokyo, I couldn't afford to go to Tokyo and live the way I did. They put yeah. me in a beautiful four-star hotel, paid for all my food. I, I went everywhere. These businessmen in suits bowing before you. Like, I'm not kidding you. Weeping. Just because you're in Star Wars. I'm Listen, listen to them. Yeah. Well, obviously, people think, it may be true, that Japanese culture is incredibly fetishy in many ways. They fetishize. It, it's all men. I didn't see any women. These were signings, not conventions. Okay. Particularly in, in either sci-fi shops or in private rooms in hotels where these guys, I mean, wow. they coughed up the cash and they came with a bag of stuff and they'd bring it over to you and would you mind, and then bow, you'd sign it, they'd take it away and then go put it in a bag and watch you from across the room, then bring it back, would you mind, signing each individual item. Whew, it was, I mean, I almost started crying. The, at the end, of, they would bow and cry and thank you so much. Listen, to some people, that film and that franchise, to a lot of people, it brings back very, very emotional moments in their lives. Yeah. Memories. It, in a way, I think those films are more like a song. Because you know how like when you hear a song and you remember where you were? Yeah. Maybe not the first time you heard it, but you remember, oh, I was in that relationship or that was that period of my life. Edson was, he, we were cleaning this morning and my husband was doing the soundtrack because he won't listen to mine. And he was doing a lot of 80s and 90s stuff. And I had to stop a couple of times. I remember how much energy I put into that particular song by the Bee Gees or by whatever. Well, dancing as a, as a, as a kid. Or just yeah. the, the, the laying in my room and listening to my, that song when yeah. I was 16. And how much effect, you know, the Eagles had on my 
teen years. You know, so I think those films, because usually verbal performance, the response is immediate. But I think those films, especially when we'll obviously we'll watch later, have a lot of memory for people. And I think I've experienced when they come to the conventions, they bring their families, they bring their kids because they want their kids. To, this is that guy from that film from that long ago. And then they'll tell the kid that story or a kid will bring his mom and she'll wheel him up. You know, some of these kids still live at home and they want to experience that memory with their mother again because it, 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 there's just Lucas is brilliant filmmaker yeah and and maybe one of i think he's i think he's a better filmmaker than people ever give him well, credit for I, I think he gets a lot of credit but i don't know i don't I, maybe you're right i don't know i think i think because of the 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 prequels he gets a lot of he gets a lot of shit but the first prequel made 456 million dollars its first year out but so it, i know what you mean uh, yeah I, if, of if course you go back and look reviews, at, if you yeah, go back and look yeah, at yeah. thx yeah 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 i yeah. thx is actually my favorite of his film. of his movies um what I think American so. Graffiti that film was film where I grew up that's where I grew up Marin oh. and he grew up there too yeah and that's how Modest, I grew Modesto. up Modesto is that, is that right well it, the, some of the film was shot in San Rafael at, at yeah. a hamburger stand that, okay. that isn't there anymore maybe it was set in Modesto but anyway the, you know the way that he was able to take people's childhoods in a way it's almost scary and manipulate them with those hmm. films genius so now when I do those conventions my husband wants to joke about some of the people that show up at them and if you were a novice to those conventions if you'd never been you could see why some of it seems childish or silly but once I told my husband to back off a bit I remember that for a lot of people to come here this is a very important part of their lives and then once he saw all the films because he's from Brazil and hadn't seen them all and then the, the Albuquerque one really opened his eyes to what it was like because he hung out with the actors. And at that one, rare for these, the Star Wars and Star Trek actors mixed at the same convention. doesn't happen often. No. They don't like each other at all. <laughs> and also... Don't cross the streams. Oh, see. Seriously. And also, a lot of... What's that one? What's that cartoon? Not a cartoon. They're actual actors in the costumes. But it, um, Power Rangers. Yeah. My husband grew up watching that. That was his thing. And at that particular convention, we had about six Power Rangers. And he lost... His mind, <laughs> hanging out. So with he them. finally got he it. He knew who they were. I think and Lou Ferrigno, he and Lou became like this, and suddenly for him, he attached, and then he got it. Yeah. Now he, he gets finally it. got it. Yeah. I think you, just thinking about it, you kind of sit on this weird um, sort of crossroads. You obviously Star Wars is important to you. But for a lot of people, Mrs. Doubtfire is important to them. Yeah, yeah. So you've been in both Star Wars and Mrs. Doubtfire. It's almost like this weird crossroads where yeah. these these two kind of roads meet. And then they come to see my stand-up and they're terrified. What happened? It's so nice in the movies. But um, yes, yes. I know, to be in two I- iconic films, it's such a strange stroke of luck. Do you get recognized a lot for being in Mrs. Uh, Doubtfire, just in the street? I have been. Obviously, once the film had opened, a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I still do sometimes, and people still do mention it. And if I do a solo show in London or New York or San Francisco, oftentimes Star Wars fans will come and line up out front and ask me to sign things for them. And you're happy to do that? Uh, um, I'll do it. <laughs> I prefer they bought a ticket to the show. But anyway, yes, I will do it. Um, and, you know, I, again, I feel lucky to have been involved in that and if they if 
look, it's better than a kick in the twat. It's better than people yeah. saying, you were in that shitty film, we hate it. So, you know. I mean, some people, like you said, have some grievances about the Star Wars film. I happened to have a very small part in their grievances about it. You've mm. probably heard all of them. We all have. Yeah, yeah. But in the end, it's fucking Star Wars, man. Yeah. So I was in it. You weren't. <laughs> so there you go. Um, <laughs> I met George really Lucas. <laughs> he directed me. I ran into him in the mall after the film had come out. And I said, he was with his daughter buying stuff. I said, George, what happened? He said, well, that's how I knew this. He said, honestly, your, your head and your body didn't fit. I'm like the story of my life. He said, no, you look fine now. <laughs> but on camera, it just didn't work. So we always end with a quiz. Capuro is a car dealership in Gibraltar. How many years' experience do they have? This is just going on their website that I found. Right. Um, I'll say 38 years of experience in Gibraltar. 140. Really? Yeah. They must have been one of the first. It's a very common name in, in Genoa, which isn't far from Gibraltar. Okay. Maybe you've got family there. Probably do. Italians, you know. Uh, what year was Madame, Madame Doubtfire published? 1978. Weirdly, you got it the wrong way around. 1987. Oh, right. What was your Star Wars character called? It was called Bede. Full name? Oh, I don't know the full name. I just signed Bede on the picture. Oh, do you? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> You yeah. don't even sign Scott. If they want me to. I signed with... I, signed, I learned my lesson the first time. I asked them what they want me to sign. Okay. And believe me, they're very particular about where they want the signature and what they want it to say every time. So, so you learned your lesson. Yeah. What was Greg Proop's character? Fode. Yeah. You were Bede Anodu. Oh, right. I have seen that in print. Yeah. Yeah. On the script. Cute. No, no. No? Um, or maybe they named you afterwards. Maybe it's on the package for the action, action figure. figure. Okay. Um, how long has the right stuff been on TV? 16 years? Yeah. Yeah. 2000. Do you love doing that? I love it. Yeah? I was there for the 10th with my sister. Matthew and my sister got along very well. That's all I'm going to say about that. Oh. And, um, <laughs> well, he's, he's a divorced man. It's fine. No, he's married now. Oh, is he? Well, yeah. he was divorced then. He was at the time. Um, do you ever get in trouble? Do they ever have to like, you know, on the weirdest, pull you on For the say, weirdest reason. It had nothing to do with Matthew or the, or the crew. I can't blame them. It was completely my own fault. They're very supportive. And Matthew is incredibly supportive of me. Because you are very cheeky. I am. <laughs> we're, we're, he is too. And we're very good friends. I adore him. We're having dinner soon, actually. And um, he really likes my husband a lot. He thinks Edson's hilarious. And Matthew's come see my stand-up. He's, he's a great supporter of stand-up comedy. Hmm. He likes poking fun. Yeah. Well, his mentor was, you know, um, at the sun, the sun, what's his name? You know, Piers Morgan. Oh, really? Yeah, that's where... But they, Matthew and he worked together for they, years. They, he ripped him all the time. I'm sure he does. So they're, they're good friends behind the scenes? I don't know that they're good friends, but I do know that they worked together very closely okay. for, for a long time. And he always, he always rips uh, Jeremy Kyle as well. He does. Yeah. Loves every minute of it. And Matthew <laughs> has a great and extensive knowledge of celebrity culture in the UK. Yeah. And he's, he's like a Rolodex. And also, he's incredibly inspired by information. He writes that show. He's, he's a great talent. He writes the show. He's incredibly underrated. In this Amazing. Country. Although, I didn't know that. the show is the highest rated in the country for its time slots. It's great. But... I do it because it's effing fun to yeah. do. And you can swear, don't worry. <laughs> I just thought it was on TV with him. And also, <laughs> but also, one day I'd read a story and I had, and a woman had said that she'd, oh, something about her religious beliefs. 
uh, connected with her brother's death. She visited his grave every day and prayed. And I said something like, well, whatever gets you through the night, if you believe that stuff. Wow. <laughs> I didn't even think about it. And nothing was said at the time. Yeah. But the next morning I got there and they're like, you um, have to write a letter and read it on the air of apology. Which I was happy to do. It's not my show. Yeah. And I, I think they well, what probably What did you it. break? Was it just them being overly cautious? Humiliating a they... person over their religious beliefs. That's a... Okay. And they felt she was humiliated. Or were they she again just being overly cautious? Humiliated, shamed, whatever. I <clears throat> belittled someone. Okay. I'm not quoting them when I say humiliated. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I had, you know, and that is probably some sort of British... Uh, but they have standards. And yeah, that they, they, of course they yeah. do. Offcom? Offcom? Offcom, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure that they maybe heard, um, maybe they heard from Offcom. Or they were covering their own ass. Or the lawyer said, Scott oh, yeah, they to get a lawyer. There's a lawyer in the zoo the whole time. All the time, okay. Oh, yeah. Screechy. Yeah. Yeah. So they um, asked me to do that. I did it. Okay. And the great thing about them is, once you do it, it's over. Yeah. They don't bring it up. But they ask you back. You're on it oh, yeah. often? Every couple of months? Yeah. If, uh, yeah, and they, um, they've never... You know, I mean, they're, uh, and he loves it when I'm, you know, and then last time I was, I was just on with Jason Donovan and, um, they, sh- Jason's on tour and they showed a video of he and Kylie. Yeah. A clip. And after the video but played. Back in the day. Yeah. And after the video played, it was just him running down the street and her singing, like close up of her. Oh, that music video. Yeah. Um, the famous one. Together it's forever. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And after, cause he sings that song in his live tour with another woman, obviously. Yeah. So after the video played, applause, I said, God, Jason, and he'd already made fun of my accent. Because I, I did my Andy Warhol accent backstage, and he said, yours is terrible. Here's mine. And his was much better than mine, actually. Um, he's great at it. Brilliant. I mean, a great, mi- a great mimic. He's a great, again. Well, just just uh, give a little bit of your Andy Warhol. Uh, mine is just like, oh, because um, uh, he said oh and ah a lot. So I did a lot of oh and ah, really? Oh, oh. And he was very monotone in real life. Yeah. So it was like, um, Oh, we were at Studio Fifty Four, and you know, Cher lost her shit. It was like that a little bit. Yeah. But then when I do his diary bits, real quotes from what he wrote about the time, I'm able to be more animated. Yeah. So Jason did his, and it did sound like a very flat East Coast. It was great. So I was kind of annoyed about that backstage. So we're on stage, we're on the camera, and I said, "That video, Jason, that you look great in that video." He went, "Thank you." I said, "But who is the guy?" <laughs> and Matthew fell off his chair and Donovan high five me. And Matthew's like, oh, Jesus. And, and then it went on from there. So he, he, you know, and then after I did the show for the, just a few days, I was only on for a few days that week because I'd been in Berlin and filming some stuff. And Matthew sent me a really sweet text and said, the way you skirt the Ofcom, the way you do it, he said, you, you, you're just on the edge and you never give them the chance to call. But is that a conscious thing you're doing, or you, is it just I, you sheer know what I do? luck? I follow his lead. That's okay. all I do. He knows what he. I don't. He's been on for 16 years, yeah. and he has pissed off Kambov a few times, and he's gotten out of it. So he's a, a master at it. Yeah. Morning TV. Do you know how fragile that is, and or how, potentially it is, or the, maybe it isn't. Maybe it's maybe you have more buffer in the morning because I don't know. More adults watching the kids are at school. I don't know, but anyway, he. I just follow his lead. I watch him while I'm talking. And if he does this, then I back away from you him. You back away. But I would never... Look, well, all I'm trying to be is funny. I would never go on that show thinking I'm going to get them where I'm going. I have no agenda. Mm. And I can't imagine people assuming I do if they watch me But I'm because I'm, I'm way too stupid. I have no... I'm just... And Matthew assured me years ago, don't, you don't have to go for the joke. You're not on because you're comic. You're on because you're interesting. So just talk. 
which is a great relief to me. Well, what I like about you on the show is that if, if, if I feel that someone is going to get too serious, Scott's always That's there. That's Because exactly. he can undermine you. You've picked it up. It's, exactly. It's not that yes. big a deal. Yes. Even if it is something as, we're not quote that unquote, sh- well, I, I say important as Maddie McCann. Exactly. Yeah. I, I don't think that that, that show is not a political diatribe. It's not Newsnight. It's morning TV about the newspapers. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a brush of the current news. And things can get a bit serious in there, and that's fine. But I always feel like a go-to if it does, although I don't force it. And there are subjects now that I've learned to completely stay silent about if it comes up on the show. Like what? Well, I'm not going to go near religion. Okay. Unless it's a comical religion thing, or unless it's about American religious stuff, like crazy fanatical people screaming at the camera, burning a cross. Yeah. Shift. Then, of course. But I'm not going to – if there's some or, – or, of course, if some horrible death has happened, I'm not going to. Yeah. But, you know – if there's a BBC wink wink, you know, fiddling thing I can maybe, you know, <laughs> or a Catholic priesty thing I can joke about, or anything with a sexual innuendo. Not a swear word. I would never do that. Yeah. Because Camera straight it, to you. Yes. And if they start complaining about gay sex, the network can say, well, then you're just a homophobe. He can say what he wants, mm. you know. And, it, and I try to make it all, all come back to me. Like, for instance, when I was on last week, uh, Matthew was gone on the Friday, and um, Richard Maidley was hosting one yeah. day. And I adore Richard. I've been on when he hosted before. He's very chatty. He's adorable. And he goes to me, well, Scott, what's the American perspective on that? Which is hilarious because, you know. <laughs> like you represent America. There's 350 All million of them. Of them. <laughs> yeah. And um, I love that he does that. It's, it's so posh English. But anyway, <laughs> he was saying, um, the, he ended the show by saying something really low-key, something Debbie Downer about, Oh, you know, yeah, online trolls. I just, I just find it so disgusting. I mean, I, I just picture some, you know, middle-aged man at home in his pants, you know, I think he said masturbating to the screen, all sweaty. And I said, Richard, I told you to delete that photo. <laughs> and those pants were a gift from my mother. And I got a right. So that was a, the show ended because yeah. it had gotten a bit like, you know, so that I can I try to draw, and that must be why they. That must be one reason well, why I they hire you. Why they why they, they hire you. a lot of comics. Yeah, a lot of comics are on that show. But I think, um, but you in particular, it's a perspective. Like if, if, that I, you, if I think know. of the right stuff, I obviously think of Matthew Wright. Yeah, I think of Screecher. But then I also kind of connect you with that show as well. Yeah, I like it. I think that um, people, more, I mean, as in more so over than other people. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, Lowry, Thingamajiggy. Yeah, and, yeah. And Anne Diamond. The first time I did the show with her, I turned to her and said, "You're very." Middle England, she said, you haven't researched me, have you? And then I went home and Googled her. And I never made that mistake either again. Yeah. I Google every guest I'm on with now. So you I asked him in advance. Because I didn't know that she was a fucking cunt about gay marriage. Yeah. And it told, encouraged her gay friends to not get married and said if they did that she wouldn't allow them around her kids. She's a fucking nasty piece of work. However, on camera with her, we're chummy chum chum because there's no point. Yeah. There's no point spending a week with two people that hate each other. So I'm all about her. I'm all about nudging. But if you see, I make fun of her. Outfit, if I can, by day three, I make fun of, I, I needle her a little bit. Just a little bit, like a brother. Like a brother. Yeah. Or a cousin. Like a family member. Because there's no point. I mean, I interviewed, because I used to interview for the BBC. Uh, I was lucky enough to, and I interviewed... Um, uh, for the gay show. Yeah. Yeah. And other, other stuff, too. Okay. But yeah, the gay show a lot. And I interviewed um, Ruby Wax. And she, of course, a brilliant interviewer, very well experienced. And she said to me off camera, she, she said, can I give you one piece of advice? I said, yes. And she said, don't piss off the guests. You never get anything out of them. Don't yeah. challenge them. 
act like you're their best friend. I said, but I saw you interview Imelda Marcos. You looked up her skirt. And you said, I'm looking for Little Meldy. I'm sure Little Meldy is up there somewhere. <laughs> I said, that's a memorable moment for me. She said, yeah, but we, at, that's after two days of being with her. She said, you've got to, you, you can't, you've got to be their friend. Yeah. And so now. You've got to entice them in. Yeah. She was, her, her show in the 90s was great. She's brilliant. Again, underrated. And, and um, so now when I'm on the right. Yeah. You know, everyone that's on. You know, we get there an hour before for rehearsal and stuff, and I'm like, "How you doing? Who are you? Great, this is me." And then I get out of their way, and I just try to be. And then you go and Google them. Like the night before, my husband assures me that I'm loud and abrasive. <laughs> an American, and he, loud and abrasive. And he tells me, "You don't go in warm. You got to remember that. You don't go in warm." Hmm. We were just in Australia, and I hadn't played Australia in 14 years. I was banned from Australia for stand-up. Why were you banned? I was banned from the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Not from Australia, not from all of Australia. I was going to say. But the thing is, if you can't get into Melbourne, they're not going to take you over because it's too long a flight. What were you? I jacked off to Jesus on, on a chat chat show. I was on a chat show. I did my first ten minutes of my act as I'd been hired to do. One of those moments was me, uh, like air guitar masturbating to Jesus, and. What do you mean to Jesus? In in sense, the 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 image of Jesus before me. I was like, "Come on, Jesus, suck it. Come on, motherfucker." Oh. (laughs) And um, they. They didn't like that. They got a few calls. But they ran with it. They used it to the benefit. In the end, it wasn't played with properly. And it affected my being able to get back into, the, into Australia. And I couldn't get back in. I couldn't find a promoter that would, had the courage to return to that for 14 years. Mm. Until, weirdly, the comedy store, which is a great club, just said, yeah, we'll have you over. I hadn't even approached them. Brilliant. I didn't think I'll go straight to a comedy club. But a friend of mine played it, a comic from here, and said, you should call them. They're great. And uh, they're not associated with the store here at all. They're their own thing. And it's a beautiful club. And uh, I went, I called them, and they're like, they took a couple years to get me over, and then they did. I got there, and the first day I go in, I'm defensive because I'm worried they remember my reputation. And I'm like, they're going to think I'm a cunt, and I'm some guy who just jacked off to shit, you know. And uh, I don't know. I, it's a long flight, and we were tired. We'd just been to Brazil. This sounds so grand. Anyway, I get to the club. And I, I say to the club manager, this be adorable guy who's so sweet. I said, oh, here are my taxi receipts. Can I get this covered, please? And he was like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> Welcome to our club. We're so excited to have you here. Yeah, can I get the cash for that? My husband just says to me, he go, the guy's like, uh, okay. So he takes the receipts and goes around. Oh, first he says, I don't know if we're covering those. I said, you'll find that you are. Can I just get the cash? Wow. And he picked him up. <laughs> And went around the corner. I'm sure he said, he's a cunt. To whoever he's working with in the back. Yeah. Rightfully so. And my husband turned to me and said, you got to bring the bar down a little bit. Just bring it down. You're being a bit bring of a the cunt. bar down. He said, you are not being warm. And that guy was really, really nice to you. I said, what did I do? I'm just being professional. He said, no. We're having this conversation. <laughs> you know, we've talked about this. How do you need to be warm? What? So I'm a bit autistic, like most comics are. So when he came back around the corner, I said, look, I'm sorry, it was a long flight, and I'm a bit nervous because I haven't played Australia in 14 years. He said, you know what, it's it's fine. Here's your cash. Don't worry about it. And then, thankfully, I was there for two weeks, so I was able to make up for my being such an inappropriate <laughs> ass. <laughs> and um, the shows went very well, thankfully. And by the end of the two weeks, I think I got him around. And he doesn't care. This guy runs a comedy club. He just wants the shows to be good. Yeah. And as long as you're not, I did set the equipment on fire. I did oh. that, too. I set the sound equipment on fire. Jesus Christ. Uh, my first night. Uh, you know, well, maybe well, the way I to should have been banned. You yeah, I know, exactly, no, seriously. 
Seriously. And all the comics knew the history of what had happened because they'd all seen it, it had been on a very popular, like the like their version of the Tonight Show. Yeah. In Melbourne. And, you know, of course, when they were young at home, wanting to be sent to comics, they watched me. And a lot of them said, didn't that bit make you, why didn't you ever come back? Because it should have made you the most famous comic. You, in, uh, we thought it was genius. Wasn't that intention? Like their perception of it was, didn't that make you like a household name star? I said, no. It meant that I could have. So it was the weirdest thing. It was such a ticked box for me because I wanted to go back for so long. And I want the story of my working in Australia to not be, I'd gone on this TV show, I jacked off to Jesus, and I got banned. I wanted the story to be, I played the comedy store, and I did well for two weeks. And now that is the story. Scott, that's how we end the podcast. Thank you. I've Thanks been Robert Gershenson. Thanks, Robert. I've been Scott Capurro. We'll shoot you later. See you later. Thanks. Thanks.